Nice segue. Manufacturing Descent since 1996. This is Hell. We stream live at 10 a.m. Chicago time for 80 minutes every Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday and our podcast shortly after at thisishell.com. However, this week's shows are on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday instead, and I will explain why later on today's show. The world broadcast premiere of all four hours of every week's This Is Hell happens on Saturday mornings from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. on Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM. This Is Hell also airs in an abbreviated version every week on Lumpen Radio on Chicago's South Side and on Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho. And we are now podcast at the Freeform nonprofit, non commercial, United Kingdom based online radio outlet, Beware, which you can find at BewareTheRadio.com For those of you who are Patreon subscribers Are now regularly scheduled Thursday Patreon podcast will happen on Friday morning this week Beginning at 10 a.m. Chicago time Like all of our episodes begin at 10 a.m. Chicago time And again the Patreon podcast will return to streaming live and podcast on Thursdays Next week we'll again explain why all the schedule foo-for-all is happening this week Yes, I said foo-for-all What is known as the militia movement in the United States Takes its inspiration from the militias that fought in the Revolutionary War against the British Crown Today's militias find inspiration in their reading of the Constitution Which, according to them, legitimizes their efforts to protect the people from tyranny by the government They're simply doing... What the founding fathers tell them to do Within the words of the founding document of the United States At least that's the way they see it Constitutional law as they understand it is on their side Of course their understanding of constitutional law is dubious at best And their religious-like belief in the infallibility of the founding fathers is equally suspect Militias as we know them are grounded in the ground zero of the 1995 McMurrah building bombing in Oklahoma City An act of terrorism by militia member Timothy McVeigh that killed 168 people. Since then, their ranks have grown, then shrank, then grown again, moving away from their more constitutional framing that rarely engage in such violence to militias that are more interested in conspiracies than they are the Constitution. These militias no longer need to be legitimized by the Constitution. Instead, they're being legitimized by a former president of the United States and are far more likely to engage in actual violence. In a few minutes, we'll learn the current state of the militia movement and where it may be headed when we speak with sociologist and expert in contemporary U.S. militias, Amy Cooter, who wrote the Scientific American article, Citizen Militias in the United States are moving toward more violent extremism. In some members, a longing for simpler times is giving rise to deadly activities. The House Committee on Veteran Affairs asked Amy, along with other experts, to testify in October 2021 about extremist groups recruiting military veterans to their ranks. She has also served as an expert consultant on federal hate crimes trial. Amy is a senior lecturer in sociology at Vanderbilt University. And you can follow Amy on Twitter at 
Amy Cooter and find out more about Amy at her website, amycooter.com. I'm your Bitter, Blind, Broke, Gap, Toothed radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Richard Norwood. Richard, how are you? Anything new in your world? Oh, feeling reinvigorated. Oh, really? Why is that? Actually doing some work this week. Wow, look at you. (laughs) Real live paying work. Good for you. Well, I've been gainfully employed for the whole time, but but we're actually doing some work that... You know, we're we're supposed to be doing <laughs> some actual work that actually the, uh, has to do with what reality was like before the pandemic. Exactly, the uh, Chicago Puppet Festival is ongoing right now. Really, and they're renting uh, the museum, the MCA, for one of their shows. The uh, Cabinet of Curiosities is doing a show at our space, and it's going to be pretty cool. I've heard of that Cabinet yeah. of Curiosities. Yeah, it's Frank uh, Majuri. He used to be with Red Moon, and and now he has his own company. But they do a lot of really fantastic work. So Yeah, they did. A, I used to go to any Red Moon show that they would possibly have. They were always really in, intense and very different and very immersive, which I really dug. What's new in my world is after four months of struggling on air while suffering with a sore throat that kept getting worse and worse toward the end of each show and was getting more painful every day, a sore throat that my doctor believed was related to the bronchitis from which I was also suffering. Well, what's new in my world is I have been diagnosed with gastroesophageal reflux disease with esophagitis without hemorrhage. It's a fancy way of saying acid reflux. I have been prescribed omeprazole and sucralfate. I knew I was going to get one of those words wrong, which I'll be taking for the next couple of weeks if the soreness continues and I'm in far less pain right now than last week. I still may need to get an endoscopy to determine what the problem is. My doctor asked if I had ever had an endoscopy. I told him I did not as far as I remember, to which he replied, you would remember. Depends on which end it goes in. It's very unpleasant, exactly, and I've had the other end. So as soon as I got home, I looked it up online, and because I was freaking out, I clicked on the first result, which was the definition from Wikipedia, which states, An endoscopy is a procedure used in medicine to look inside the body. The endoscopy procedure allows an endoscope to examine, basically a camera, to examine the interior of a hollow organ or cavity of the body. Unlike many other medical imaging techniques, endoscopes are inserted directly into the organ. In other words, if the pain does not subside in the next two weeks, they're shoving a camera down my throat. My doctor is correct. That does sound unpleasant. I would even go so far as to say it sounds miserable, disgusting, distasteful, revulsive, unsavory, vile, yucky, even hellish. But more important than me spending time finding synonyms for unpleasant. Richard, what's this week's question from hell? What's this week's this week's question from hell is, what have you been putting off? What have you been putting off. I was putting off a doctor's appointment because I was really freaking out that he was going to tell me I had throat cancer or COPD, and who knows? Maybe I still have those. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want, the This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, or the face mask, the coffee mug, the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s, the trucker's cap in a couple of different colors, just like the 
this is Hell Mask, the Winter Beanie or Toque if you prefer. You can check out all our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you, you for your support. We do not take any commercial money, we don't take any foundation money, and we don't make enough profits to afford to be a not-for-profit. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email chuck at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth, which is the way that we conclude each and every week's show. Thanks to the following listeners who went to thisishell.com and clicked on support. Thanks to Charlie B. in New Orleans, who picked up a This Is Hell trucker cap. Thanks to Rosalind F. of Lexington, Kentucky, who got a This Is Hell camping mug. Thanks, Charlie and Rosalind. Richard will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell, some of your answers to this week's question from hell, following our conversation with Amy on the rise of militias in the United States. Again, the question from hell is, what have you been putting off? What have you been putting off? Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And I believe Richard has this week's hangover cure. I do. This week's hangover cure is Kim Chi and an egg, uh, which sounds like a bad lead up to a bad joke. <laughs> Kim Chi and an egg I walk do. into a bar. <laughs> I do love uh, Kim Chi, though. It's delicious. Last week, we cited a New Year's Eve article that was posted at Forbes with the article headline 16 bartenders share the hangover remedies they swear by. And we're doing it again this week. The story quotes Drew Record. Andrew Record, yeah, managing that. partner of Che Che in San Francisco, California, saying there is nothing quite as fortifying as a little kimchi and an egg, and of course, as much water as I can muster, soft boiled or poached if you can get it, but beggars can't be choosers and all. When I used to travel a lot as a whiskey ambassador, <laughs> interesting I, job. I found that the kimchi reset my gut and the egg gave me enough protein to roll right back into those early morning tasting sessions. Oh boy. Jeez. It often seems counterintuitive to eat when you are nauseous, but honestly, push past it and get that first bit of something in your stomach to give your system a fighting chance against all the stuff you threw at it the day before. That makes this week's hangover cure, according to someone who claims to be a whiskey ambassador, a little kimchi and an egg. I wonder how those diplomatic talks with whiskey are going right now between the whiskey ambassador and whiskey. I I wonder if it's as tough as what's going on with the United States, Ukraine, and Vladimir Putin. We are looking for new board operators to join our staff here on This Is Hell in 2022. If you would like to run the board, as Richard is doing right now, as Alex does, and as Sebastian is beginning to do this year email us at chuck at this is hell.com chuck at this is hell.com what better way to start your new year with a new gig running the board here on this is hell it's the next best thing to winning the lottery 
and it's a lot easier. If you would like to join us here on This Is Hell, email me at chuck at thisishell.com, chuck at thisishell.com. We are looking for people who can run the board anywhere from once a week here at our studio above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood with shows beginning at 10 a.m. Monday through Wednesday and our Patreon podcast now on Thursday at the same time. However, we are very flexible, and if you can only do it a couple of times a month, we can work within your schedule. This is your opportunity to have access to a professional studio for your own projects as well. And we actually pay our board ops a living wage. If you are interested in becoming a board operator here on This Is Hell, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. Of course, with this position, you need to live in the Chicago area. And later on this week's show, I'll be talking about other positions that we do have open, open that where you do not have to be somebody living in the Chicago area. Work that you can do remotely. We'll be telling you about that later on in this week's show. Coming up, today's militia movement and where it finds itself post-January 6th, 2021. We'll also have This Week in Rotten History, some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what have you been putting off? What have you been putting off? And I'll be sharing with you why exactly we did not do a show on Monday. Another end of the world is possible. This is is how the militia movement in the United States is evolving, becoming something very different from what it was not so long ago, just prior to the pandemic. That turn has led to a movement that has the potential to be far more secretive, under the radar, and potentially more violent. Here to help us have a better understanding of the militia movement, who it attracts, and why sociologist and expert in contemporary U.S. militias, Amy Cooter wrote the Scientific American article, Citizen Militias in the United States Are Moving Toward More Violent Extremism. Welcome to This Is Hell, Amy. Thank you for having me. You can follow Amy on Twitter, at Amy Cooter, and you can find out more about Amy at her website of the same name, amycooter.com. So you write how you asked through your car window on a chilly, rainy April morning in central Michigan in 2008, is this field day? And you describe a lone man dressed in head-to-toe camouflage whose hand was casually resting on an AK-47 strapped across his chest, nodded and stepped aside on the narrow road. I drove ahead to a parking area next to an old red brick farmhouse and several acres of soybeans. About 50 people were gathering at a spot where the fields met a wooded bog. I was outside the village of Bancroft at what was indeed the Michigan Militia's annual field day event. The group described it as a family and public outreach opportunity held on private land that was owned by a World War II veteran. Now, Bancroft is about a half hour northeast of Michigan's capital, Lansing, where in 2020, Michigan militia members would arm themselves and occupy the state capital. And what many, myself included, saw as a dry run for what they would do if President Trump was not reelected. So how did you know back in 2008 that uh, Field Day was being hosted in Bancroft? Because I'm wondering how much of an open secret the Michigan militia and its activities are, or are they very discreet? It's just that this is your area of expertise. Yeah, so there, there's not necessarily just one big overarching unified militia. Even in Michigan, there are different groups, different units that all run things a little bit differently, and that's part of what makes them hard to track. But they've been a very open secret since the beginning in the 90s, where they attempted at least to have a public presence to be very engaged in local and state, and then, of course, eventually national politics. Um, but at the time I was doing my field work, they had a very public 
public website. They advertise many of their events. I went to some of the open public events, found out about field day at one of those, and then eventually attended more private functions as well. You point out that this is the third militia event that you had attended, and you're a sociologist, and at the time, 2008, I was a graduate student at the University of Michigan just beginning in-depth field work and interview research about the militia movement in the United States. I had approached members of the group a month earlier during a public meeting at a strip mall diner because I wanted to understand why people join civilian groups that prepare for armed combat, and I plan to examine whether militias propagate racism and violence. So aside for your plan to ex- examine whether militias propagate racism and violence, did militia members knew know why you were there, or did they did they know that you were examining racism and violence within their movement? They did. They generally knew that I was a graduate student and I wanted to understand various different things about them as a group and as a movement. Um, I'm from Northeast Tennessee, and I pulled out my accent maybe a little more heavily than it usually comes out. And they appreciated, I think, my background, the fact that I grew up around firearms, that I maybe didn't have the stereotypical background of an academic. And many of them, although they were skeptical and maybe even a little wary, still thought that I would do a better job, a more objective job looking at them than some other people had. And so they were substantially more forthcoming on the whole with me than I had anticipated. So how much do you think your familiarity with guns, you write how you were brought up around guns, how your father was a hunter, how he would, you know, you would learn how to hunt and field dress and clean at a young age. How much do you think that familiarity with guns got you access to not only the field days and trainings, but to the militia members themselves who shared their beliefs, values and motivations with you? I think it was really important that I had some experience with firearms and with some of the the general cultural things that they they find to be valuable. Um, I also think that it helped that I was a woman. A lot of folks who do this work are men. And I think a man in my position would have needed to prove himself in slightly different ways than I had to, would have been expected to have more military-specific knowledge maybe than I did. And it also put me in a position where a lot of these male members wanted to talk to me and educate me um, in a way that I think that they would have had less patience for had I been a male researcher. So I find that interesting because you point out how uh, many of the people within these groups are sexist. So uh, I find that odd that you would, that they would have that kind of reaction to you. Were they essentially, did they feel more comfortable because they were kind of mansplaining to you? I would call it mansplaining in that context. And I I honestly don't think that the levels of sexism that I encountered were greater than what I would expect in any other group of the same demographic. I get the same kind of treatment, quite frankly, from a lot of supposedly liberal academic circles. Um, But I do think that that framework helped them sort of go into more traditional gender roles where men are supposed to be in the position of knowledge and power. And I was supposed to be more receptive to, to their area of expertise. So how much, how do you feel about when people uh, claim that gun culture is what causes or is a leading factor, a leading contributing role when it comes to militia membership? Is, do you think gun culture does play a role and how significant is that role? The short answer to that is yes, and it's incredibly significant. Um, I do think that gun culture, though, is more of a, a symptom of broader issues in American society, not 
just militias. They're only one possible outcome. But they are among the Americans who do see firearms as very central to our historical mythos, the belief that a lot of elementary schools kids still get today, that the country was founded by independent, very individual-oriented white men and their firearms, that we basically would not be here today were it not for their presence. You also point out that the more extremist military bands tote guns in public, wear military garb, and endorse various conspiracy fantasies. They have confronted racial justice activists and protested pandemic public health measures in many states. In Michigan, people in one militia splinter group were arrested in 2020 and charged with plotting to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer in retaliation for a perceived failure to uphold individual liberties. Individual liberties is their focus. Individual freedom is prioritized. In your opinion, do these collective responses contradict their defense of individual liberty? And what do we miss in our understanding of militias defending individual freedom when we see them collectively working together as contradictory? Well, from their perspective, from their worldview, individualism is something that this country does in a unique sort of fashion. They mostly genuinely believe that America is set apart from the rest of the world, that our constitution enables more personal freedom than anywhere else on the planet. And we could have a different conversation about whether that always is true or whether there are alternate models as well. But again, that's genuinely what many of them believe. They think that was hard fought. They think it's very tenuous. They think that people like them have to be visible, have to stand up to protect that culture. And they see themselves as being like-minded with each other. It's, it's compatible for them to use collective action to defend something that they believe is in their individual best interest. If they believe that working together with people who share that perspective is going to help achieve that aim. I think that the biggest thing that they miss, which is not exactly your question, but I think the biggest thing that they miss when doing that is that there are people who have different backgrounds, different experiences, different relationships with the history of our country who may feel very differently, who may have different value systems, and they're not always as aware of those things as they should be. And I, again, want to emphasize that I don't think this is just a militia problem. I think this is a function of this being a largely white and male-dominated group. There are many white people, there are many white men in particular, who just don't have a lot of experiences with people of other races, people of other sorts of background characteristics than their own to make them understand that maybe their perspective and their values is not all of what America represents. And as in the title of your article, these are people who are looking towards simpler times. To what extent are those simpler times based in reality? And to what extent are they based in fantasy? Because believers argue their memory of the past is accurate, and opponents say it is a past that is completely made up. So how can we find a place where those two things converge? I mean, it would seem like it's not it's not that clear. It's not that binary. Yeah, I think that when we tell stories, but especially when we tell stories that are history, we forget sometimes that there's a lot of room for interpretation, that the way we may have learned things over and over and over again is not necessarily that full story. We know that, as I mentioned, even school kids today still learn, as a general rule, a very specific version of our nation's founding. Uh, many kids, even students who come through my classes at Vanderbilt, coming from some of the best ranked high schools in the country, 
barely learn anything about slavery or about Native American genocide. And so it's not that far of a stretch to understand that these men often really believe that these stories are true, especially thinking about when they were educated a few generations ago and those limited versions of history being even more strong then. This is one of the reasons that these conversations we're having about critical race theory being such a scary thing for certain areas of the country, for certain conservatives, is so on point here, because without that precise kind of education to understand what did happen, to look at our seedy underbelly instead of just focusing on the positive stories of our founding, we're never going to move past this mentality that there's just one unified version of history and everybody should be on the same page about it. That leads to this kind of misunderstanding, this kind of polarization in in no small measure. So does our K through 12 history curriculum, does that reinforce militia beliefs? Absolutely. That's the the long and the short of it. We we know that we don't do a great job of really showing some of our missteps, really showing what we still need to work on today, that um, entirely too many people are left through our formal education system with an overly rosy picture of not just who we were, but who we are today. So do militia members and their sympathizers not only deny a history of hostility toward minorities, a history that is well documented with extensive evidence, but also believe in a past that is a fiction? Because a lot of people listening right now may not be able to imagine living a life that is in denial of history and believes in a myth. How easy is it to live a life where one believes in a fiction and denies reality? It's incredibly easy if that's been your full educational experience. Where I grew up was very rural, very stereotypical Southern small town, where even still today, one of the public high schools has as their mascot, a Confederate soldier. They are the rebels. They don't usually pull out that mascot during the the football games so much these days, but that is their official name. That's the mentality. This is a place where even when I was in high school in AP history, I was taught that the Civil War was not about slavery. It was about a complex mess of other things that if you looked close enough, it actually still was about slavery. But that's not what these voices of authority say. It's very easy to grow up in a place like that, especially if it's a majority white place, to never have your preconceptions questioned, to never think that the world might be something other than what you were taught. And most of the folks in the militia that I encountered didn't deny a history of racism or of bad things happening, but just like we present it often in schools, it gets glossed over. It's presented in a simplified form. It's presented as something that happened a long time ago, and therefore we should be moving past it. There's a general lack of empathy for people who still struggle today because of the missteps of our past. So does K through 12 history curriculum as it is as it exists right now does it indoctrinate us uh, whatever our race is does it indoctrinate us in white supremacy I think that's a fair statement. I do think that some places do a better job than others. Some schools specifically do a better job than others. But on the whole, I think that much of what we are being taught as history certainly serves the goals of white supremacy, even if that's not the conscious intent of teachers or of school boards in making those decisions. 
you write that at these militia field days that you attended, I've observed an increase in extremism in recent years with people who used to focus on camaraderie and preparedness at militia events now echoing claims that the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th, 2021 was nothing more than a protest. Others repeatedly posted on social media about the need to personally do something about the supposedly stolen presidential election. Members making this shift were on edge in 2020, believing their core values of individualism and self-determination have been threatened by racial justice movements, the pandemic, and efforts to control it, and by what they claimed falsely was fraudulent voting. How do they see individualism and self-determination under threat by racial justice movements? How does how does racial justice threaten individualism and self-determination, in their opinion? Yeah, this is where it gets really complicated and gets back into the conspiracy theory realm. Many of them, right after George Floyd's murder in particular, were very angry. They saw the footage like everybody else. They believed the police had murdered him. Several groups were actively talking on Facebook about joining in protest in support of Black Lives Matter and and going out and combating police brutality in various different ways. But then the media narrative shifted from protests to riots. And of course, the the general gut feeling of many people watching some of that footage shifts as well, regardless of some of their other political leanings. In those Facebook chats, the rhetoric then also shifted. And bear with me because this is a bit of a leap, but the argument kind of became that these Black folks who were advocating for racial justice weren't the ones engaging in rioting. Instead, those riots were being instigated by Antifa, and they thought that Antifa was A, largely white, and B, not interested in racial justice, but instead just interested in anarchy. So for them, with this big leap, um, these, these riots, these protests became not about racial justice, but about challenging safety, about incurring on on personal space and on private property in a way that they were fearful would spread to other places in the country. From their perspective, Antifa was trying to just generally sow discord, create danger, and they felt like that was something that had to be stopped before it came to their neighborhoods. So you mentioned uh, media influence. How much does our media narrative, how much does the media narrative influence the militia movement? How responsible is the media? How, how much should we hold the media accountable for the shifts in the uh, militia movement? I think they play a large role, but it too is complicated because they don't just watch one source. We have all of the information and frankly stereotypes about Fox News that absolutely factor into this equation. They also, some of them look at Infowars or places like WorldNet Daily um, for even more extreme perspectives. Some of them also watch CNN and NBC and think about themselves as evaluating across different sources. And I think that in some ways that is reflective of a bigger point where all media sources can have a bias, even the ones that we like can also do better in terms of some of their coverage, especially critical coverage and explaining motives behind people's actions or pushing back on some of the both sides narratives or doing things like not just presenting uh, climate deniers as an equal voice when we're having scientific conversations. I think that plus how selective messages can get amplified in one's social media circles has played a big role in recent years. 
You write that many of these people heard their fears reinforced through right-wing news media and Donald Trump's rhetoric about threats yes. from immigrants and corrupt Democrats. What makes militia members and their supporters susceptible to the fears posed by threats as they view them? And is it fair to say militias, militias attract those who are vulnerable to fear? I think generally speaking, it is. There's not necessarily just one motive for people to join militias, but most people who join feel like their version of the country, life as they know it in some form or fashion, is under potential threat. And how real that is, again, is a different question. But many of them feel a sense of personal urgency to figure out what they can do about it. And until the Trump administration, many of these folks were content to sort of hang out with each other, to go to different events, to learn different firearms techniques and to, to practice other sort of almost bushcrafting type things. But when we have a leader come along like Trump, who then gives voice to all of these fearful undercurrents, things that maybe people have in the back of the mind, maybe they're, they're more or less concerned about, but then he gets up and reifies them nearly every day, tells them not, hey, calm down, I've got this, but rather, yes, your fears are legitimate and it's even worse than you think, that's going to motivate a lot of people to move into action, to become more fearful, to become more paranoid of a neighbor who doesn't look like them in some circumstances. And he catalyzed a lot of movement in that direction that, that had already started happening, um, but he made it where it was normal and okay to talk about these fears in a very exclusionary type of manner instead of taking real measures to, to address the underlying problems. And you point out the most uh, apprehensive members possess stronger racist or xenophobic attitudes and are more prone to move toward the extreme end of the spectrum. They are susceptible to appeals from hate groups such as the Proud Boys or overt neo-Nazis, believing that despite differences, they all share the overarching value of protecting what they see as America's foundation. Aside from maybe even militia groups, more generally, what is the relationship between fear and hate? Does fear fuel hate? And if so, why? It's probably a question better left to a psychologist, but from what I have seen, the short answer is again, yes, where I think if we are afraid of something, it's easy to think of it as sort of inherently bad or inherently threatening. And then hate is not a far stretch from that. We are, spe we are speaking with sociologist and expert in contemporary U.S. militias, Amy Cooter, who wrote the Scientific American article, Citizen Militias in the U.S. are moving toward more violent extremism. And you write that no one really knows how many civilian militia groups exist because they repeatedly form, splinter into separate units, and dissolve as members' interests wax and wane. How easily do those interests wax and wane? And what do you think causes that waxing and waning? There are a variety of different factors that fit into to why people want to, to join something like this. And then again, why people are interested in, in even researching groups like this. I think that we usually see uh, there are movements tied to our overarching political cycles. It tends to be the case, <clears throat> sorry, that they are more sort of stirred up during Democratic presidents' tenures or, or leading up to one. They see them as less aligned with their conservative values, especially with things related to gun rights and immigration. 
usually with Republicans, then they sort of calm down and feel like those particular concerns are being more taken care of. When we see more extreme elements coming in, in terms of of the overarching cultural field, things like the pandemic, things even separately like economic collapse or, or threat thereof, that can violate our usual cycle and make people want to step into the fray for other reasons. Again, getting back to Trump, he really instigated across all of those fears, leading to a huge rise in interest, not just in militias, but in some other nostalgic groups across the board during his presidency. And we're still seeing the lingering effects of all that. And you also mentioned how there are a few women who fully participate in militias and because of their activity, they tend to be well-respected and rise to leadership roles. Jessica Watkins, a leader of an Ohio militia who was arrested for her participation in the Capitol riot, is one example. Still, most militia units have a culture suffused with casual misogyny. So from what you've witnessed, what attracts women to a group suffused with misogyny? Why would women join? Well, again, I don't know that the misogyny in these groups is actually that much more than a lot of other groups. So this is probably very similar to what of the a lot of the women who join experience at work, especially if they're in a male dominated pr- profession. It may not seem all that far out of the norm for them. But among the women that I talked to, the main driving factor for them was a similar concern to the men, that they really felt like something was wrong with the direction the country was going and they wanted to do something about it. There were many women sort of attached to the movement that I met who didn't consider themselves members. They saw it more as their husband's or their boyfriend's activities. Most of them said that they were too busy to participate, even if they really were interested. And and indeed, in most of those family structures, more of the women had responsibilities for younger kids or household care that left them less free time to do militia things on the weekend. But they all still said, you know, I think he, meaning my husband or boyfriend in whatever case it was, is right that we're in trouble. And I support his efforts to do something about this. For the women who do move into more visible and leadership positions, they tend to really be engaged in training. They tend to be fairly vocal and to quickly gain the admiration of their male counterparts who kind of see them almost as even more special for breaking out of some of the gender stereotypes that they believe are there. You also you mentioned that uh, many members first learned these skills in the military, these uh, gun skills. One 27-year-old man who had a regular job as a customer service representative told me that his militia participation was about serving the public, wanting to do his part for the community. So do they see themselves as being socially responsible? Because last week when we were speaking with cultural studies and critical pedagogy scholar at McMaster's University, the author Henry Giroux, Henry differentiated freedom as individual freedom and a freedom rooted in social responsibility that Henry also argued can coexist. So are are militias operating under an ethos of social responsibility as well as individual freedom? And if so, what do we miss in our understanding of militias when we don't see them acting with a sense of social responsibility? Yes, most of them say that they feel very driven by a sense of civic duty, that they really 
think that they are in a position to learn skills, to help people in a variety of circumstances. They see themselves as getting prepared, not just for political disasters, but for natural disasters. Some of them carry a good deal of emergency supplies in their cars. And of course, if they're in a state like Michigan, odds are decent that you could use them either to help yourself or to help another stranded motorist. And I heard several such stories during my field work. Their belief is that eventually more Americans are going to realize like they have the potential danger of the government, that we're slipping toward tyranny in a, a few different ways. And they see themselves as being positioned to help people when that happens. There are more extreme elements who care less about that, who then frame their perspective more as revenge, as trying to punish police or law enforcement. And that's the area where we really get concerned about possible violence or other very problematic actions. And you mentioned how the 27-year-old man who had a regular job as a customer service representative proposed ideas for his group, such as organizing fundraisers to help People who had lost their jobs, members like him, saw their militia involvement as simply another form of neighborly support and a means to connect to other people with similar values. So during the pandemic, we have seen a lot of mutual aid groups uh, pop up that, and they vastly ex- expanded during the pandemic, and they do not limit their assistance to those who share their values. So are militia groups exclusive as opposed to an inclusive group, group like uh, your local community food pantry? would be? Are they only interested in helping those who do share their beliefs? No, they're interested in helping everybody in no small part because they believe that's good for PR. Um, They often don't have the kinds of resources to really put out a full-scale project, however. In practice, it tends to be limited to neighbors or other semi-local community members. And I I did hear several stories about them helping people that they actually had pretty stark political disagreements with. But the the idea was, you know, this is our family, our community. Um, So, of course, we're going to have a role here. You write that militia members often told me they longed for a simpler time, as we were discussing earlier, when they insist that individuals, especially men, took more responsibility for working and providing for their families, where the federal government was smaller and not a substitute for self-sufficiency the way they perceive it to be today. But during the time they look back to, the federal government was far larger because it had far more revenue generated by higher taxes. So it explains their belief that in the past, with higher taxes and more resources, the government was somehow smaller than it is today. Are they in denial of all the success the small government movement has had since the Reagan administration? I think that their reference point goes back earlier. They're thinking more about the time of the founding fathers when there were a limited handful of people who really worked in government, who really represented some sort of overarching power structure. What gets lost in their framework, of course, is then how do we manage having such a large nation, which a much with a much bigger population today than we do or than we did at that time, where of course it's easier to manage a small country relative to the populace we have today. But their ideal is very much about having this hands-off approach, not having so many agencies, not having to get various different permits to do whatever you want to do on land that you're supposed to own. Um, Thinking then about how that resonates with some of their conversations about taxes and generally being opposed to federal taxes and that sort of thing as well. So how much does their view of the Constitution and the Founding Fathers 
resemble a religious-like faith, that uh, questioning whether the Founding Fathers should be paragons, as you uh, point out that they see them as, uh, people of excellence and perfection. Is it akin to, you know, sacrilegious blasphemy if you have any type of criticism of the Constitution of the Founding Fathers? It's not quite that extreme. The Constitution, in their view, is is definitely a sacred document, but a few of them um, recognize that that includes the amendments, that it includes a few originating flaws, especially when it comes to Black folks, is, is usually the, the exception that I hear there. Um, but they, they try more to recognize the Founding Fathers as human, that they were noble and heroic, but had flaws. And I think that they do that in part because it makes them more approachable and makes it easier to imitate them, which many of them see themselves as doing. But you point out that they are not, when you've met, met with them, they are not openly racist. So do they communicate their racism in dog whistles or do they, are they racist in uh, unintended ways that they may not recognize? It's more the unintended way. There are, there are a few groups that have more open and over elements of racism, but as a whole, the militia movement is not oriented around racism as an ideology. It's more about how white folks, again, thinking about our educational system here, don't necessarily realize that racism is more than just Jim Crow racism. It's more than just signage and very visible signs of exclusion, but rather paternalism and buying into a host of stereotypes that still exist today. And you write that in conversations, militia participants do not appear to be aware that racism is broader than the undisguised legalized segregation of the past or the continued hatred from open white supremacists. Most have limited understanding of how systematic racism prevents equal economic attainment or equal access to quality health care educational opportunities. So to you, what explains that lack of understanding? I mean, I'm white and I get it. What keeps militia members from that understanding? I think it's two things. One is a lack of education. Um, I do think that we don't do a great job of explaining how, again, many of those things from our past still matter for today. When I talk about residential segregation and how that was legal through the civil rights movement in my classes at Vanderbilt, a lot of students have learned that, but they have no idea what that means for generational transmission of wealth and how that still matters today, even if we could pretend that no other racism existed today. That would still have a very strong lingering effect. And just that lack of knowledge is one major component. The other component is just like a lot of other white folks, they don't necessarily have the most diverse friend groups. And it's not because they're necessarily choosing that. It's just because of where they grow up, where they live, they're in those segregated communities. And so they don't have a lot of opportunities to hear from people with different experiences. And I know to some of your listeners that might sound strange, but I can't tell you how many students I had in my classes when I was a graduate student at Michigan who were undergrads who said that they had never actually even seen a Black person in person before coming to a college campus. So it's not that far outside the realm of possibility that these men who were a generation, two or three generations older, had similar experiences. And it, it literally just never crossed their mind as something to think about those lingering consequences of today. So why does that lack of understanding then lead to fear, if not hatred? I think it's because they don't know what they don't know. And then they hear all these conversations about critical race theory, about the possibility of reparations. And many of them genuinely believe that those harms were left in the past, such that any kind of fix 
today is both unnecessary and unfair. Not all of them, but many of them come from economic situations that aren't fantastic. And they feel like if other people who have not directly been harmed by legalized segregation, in their opinion, are getting some sort of handout, that they should be entitled to one too, or that they haven't earned a handout and therefore no one else has either. And so it's just, it's a very difficult thought process to break into if we don't even have a basic understanding of some of these social discrepancies that still exist. So, you know, there's the stereotype of uh, militias being uh, poorly educated, rural poor who are often white. A lot of people pointed towards the January 6th, 2021 situation at the U.S. Capitol, saying that a lot of the people there were not poorly educated. They weren't uh, from rural areas and they weren't poor. Of course, if you were poor, you can't afford a flight to get to Washington, D.C. and participate. So are militias, how accurate is that stereotype? Because I'm hoping it's not that uh, militias are mostly poorly educated, rural, white, poor. It's mostly not accurate. Uh, The only piece of that that's fully accurate is the vast majority of militia members are white. They are mostly male. But in terms of socioeconomic status, in terms of education, in terms of geography, it's all over the board. The majority of members I met were not rural, had not been for at least a couple of generations. Most of them were in working class type jobs, but had at least some education. The the folks in my interview sample actually had at that time more education. They had some college on average, which was more than the average American of the same age at that point in time. Um, Most of them reported being financially comfortable, but not necessarily as well off as perhaps they felt they should be in the lens of the American dream. You mentioned one uh, militia member, a 56-year-old white man, a lifelong Detroit resident who worked in IT, blamed what he described as the downfall of his city on forced busing that happened in the wake of the civil rights movement and was intended to help equalize school opportunity. Opposition to busing has a history of open racism, but this man was trying to make a different argument. He said he believed both black and white families resented the busing policy, which required children to go to school far away from home and spend a lengthy time in transit. He said dislike of the policy made black and white quote-unquote, good workers abandoned the city, leaving behind comparatively lazy workers and disengaged citizens of both racial groups. What does a focus on busing reveal to you about the roots of militia's belief system? Well, with this man in particular, he was kind of a an old-timer within the particular group I was studying. He was older than the average member. He had lived in and around the Detroit area his entire life. And for me, that was a really interesting example because he was kind of hitting at some of that old stereotypical framing where um, busing was used in a racist manner, but it was like he had been reflective on that moment and wasn't giving me the typical story. Instead, he was he was still talking about busing as being a problem, but not necessarily for the same reason that other people had. At the same time, he was still kind of following the underlying racist logic because he didn't really get the structural barriers that would have made a very different scenario for Black and white families facing the possibility of busing coming right out of that situation of, of strong segregation. So what explains a lack of comprehension when it comes to uh, these structural or economic factors that may be the underlying cause and not 
laziness. To what extent do militia members not comprehend the role the economy and its structure plays in their lives? I think that they have a similar understanding of those issues to a lot of other white folks who believe that more things are in their personal control than really are, who look at individual responsibility, what we sometimes call the just world hypothesis, to explain what happens to them and to people that they know or that they hear about, where the general idea is, you know, if you're a hard worker, if you're doing what you're supposed to do, things will work out for you in the end. You may have some hard times but things will generally work out for you. Therefore, if things aren't working out for you, maybe you're not doing what you're supposed to do. And so that allows us to shift responsibility and even shift focus away from governmental policy that has been terrible, for example, during the pandemic or other issues that aren't really something that individuals have much control over and still think about it within this framework of that individualist American mindset. And you mentioned a historian by the name of Robert Churchill and how he has grouped the militia or militia groups into uh, constitutionalist and millenarian. And uh, I was just wondering, constitutionalist militia groups, do they feel that they're not doing anything wrong legally? Do they feel they're thoroughly legitimated by the law and therefore they have no reason to be secretive? Because that would suggest that the events of January 6th, 2021 were not seen by any of the people who entered the U.S. Capitol as a crime, potentially. They might view the vandalism as a crime, but not entering the Capitol without doing damage. So it was not that they were brazen. They thought the Constitution was on their side. Does that explain to you a lot of the actions that happened on January 6th, 2021? You know, it's part of it. Constitutionalist groups as a whole do see themselves as very much law abiding, as acting in the spirit of the Constitution, as not doing anything wrong. And I do think from the coverage that I've seen that some people who were involved in January 6th took that kind of mental framing. Many of the constitutionalist groups that I still have contact with across the country, though, were not happy about January 6th. They did not think that that was at all something that should have happened. They saw that as an encroachment on a symbol of the country. Some of them were a little more ambivalent about the idea of stopping the steal, but yet did not support that. Others said at bare minimum, you know, this makes the militia movement look bad. And it is interesting because we've learned since then that, at least as far as we know right now, the vast majority of people who were there that day did not have some kind of pre-existing affiliation with a militia group or any other kind of group, showing us that a lot of these ideas that we push to the side as being supposedly extreme, supposedly just this niche militia group thing, are actually quite widespread in our society. So they say that they're trying to, constitutionalist groups, they say that they're trying to protect the people against government tyranny. But, you know, tyranny against who? After all, minorities can argue with with great evidence that the government has been cruel and oppressive since it began. So who do they protect from government tyranny? They mostly focus on examples that make it to the news. Of course, Ruby Ridge and Waco are an important part of the militia origin story. They see those as events of of the government actively going after private citizens in a way that they think could happen to anybody else. Anytime there's a major news story where police or especially uh, any agency related to the federal government has 
acted badly in some way, they tend to mobilize around that. And I've actually seen them mobilize a few times around police brutality directed towards Black people. There are, I didn't personally witness this, but there's documentation um, from some of the groups I study as far back as the 90s of them trying to have liaisons with the Black Panthers in Detroit and work for common aims. So even those questions are not as clear cut as a lot of people think they are. You give the example of one millenarian member telling you that his reason for militia membership was revenge. He was a Desert Storm veteran who believed that the war in Iraq had been conducted under false pretenses and that the U.S. government had experimented on him and his fellow soldiers. He claimed this experimentation led to others in his unit dying early from cancer and other diseases and having high rates of children with birth defects. He said he had chosen not to have children of his own because he feared that outcome. His fear and bitterness led him to believe the government might persecute him for talking about his experiences, and he emphasized that he welcomed the fight. Assuming what he said is true, as we should assume, it's hard not to sympathize with his distrust for the government. Do militia groups attract former military members because those members feel they were lied to, lied into an unnecessary war, which they are still unnecessarily suffering from? From what I have, have observed, many military folks who are coming out of the service want to join something like a militia to continue the camaraderie and to feel like they're giving back something to their community. The vast majority of them shouldn't be lumped in with the extremist perspective. There are some, however, who do have that kind of bitterness for a variety of different reasons, but usually related to how they were treated while deployed. They tend to find the more extreme, and as you said, millenarian outlets, which are more conspiracy theory oriented, which do have a greater proclivity towards violence, and which, in my opinion, are the ones where we should focus most of our attention in terms of trying to prevent possible violence. So how much does an anti-police attitude vary among militia groups? Because that's another thing that people say they're either pro-police at times, at other times they're anti-police, because we've spoken with former FBI agent Mike German, who went yeah. undercover in far-right groups, and he reported to Congress that he found many current law enforcement personnel within the ranks of white supremacist groups. So how much does support or opposition to law enforcement vary from militia group to militia group because i think again this points out something that i mean you don't say it outright but these are not the, the militia movement is not monolithic right exactly there it's a very complicated group with a lot of different ideologies a lot of different personalities which in some ways is probably helpful because it means that there are a lot of conflicts and so there's less of an ability for the violent organizations to organize and be successful than there could be otherwise in terms of their police perspectives, it is incredibly complicated. Most of them aren't fans as, as a general rule of the idea of police, but they make exceptions for who they think of as being good police officers. And that usually means local sheriffs and their deputies, people they know, they have contact with in some form or fashion, people that they humanize, but also people they see as being connected and part of the community. They're very skeptical of law enforcement as you move higher in those levels, unless we have some sort of proof that they're supposed to be one of the good ones. Um, they do tend to appreciate law enforcement who thwart terror plots or something to that effect, who are seen as protecting the nation. 
But again, George Floyd's murder was a momentous event in this particular movement. At that moment in time, there had been an overt shift in the open dialogue being even more anti-police than I had seen in quite a long time. Then once that narrative shifted to Antifa and Antifa being a threat, many of those folks did a 180 and then started supporting police and saying that we needed to help them defend our communities and our neighborhoods. So it's not even just the group. Sometimes the members themselves aren't entirely sure how they feel about police as authority figures. And you write that constitutionalist groups that previously ridiculed conspiracy fantasies, as you were just pointing out, have pivoted to saying things like they were monitoring or researching claims from the far-right conspiracy movement QAnon, even as they denied fully embracing them. They share posts that prophesized uh, terrorist attacks that never came to be. They pass around fake news stories about people in the Antifa, anti-fascist movement, traveling on buses to locations all over the country, and setting fires to stoke general chaos. Now, there were reports all over the country where these rallies had big turnouts, even when there were only a handful of peaceful unarmed protesters supporting the Black Lives Movement or none showing up at all. At times, it reminded me of what I've read about the response to Orson Welles' uh, 1938 radio drama, War of the Worlds. (laughs) What do those rallies reveal to you about the current state of the militia movement? Is it anything more than just a bunch of Trump rallies? I think it is not all militia members even care for Trump at all, but he's still an important variable, I think, in their mentality. I think that he still can legitimize fears they have, even if they don't like him specifically. I think that just generally the events that we've seen the last few years, even if we could ignore January 6th, are just indicative of how on edge a lot of these folks are about various different conversations we're having from the economy to the pandemic to race and social justice on other issues. And I am worried that headed into the next presidential election cycle, those fears will grow even stronger and the potential for violence will grow even stronger too. So they have gained uh, popularity by claiming that guns are going to be taken away, that the government is becoming tyrannical, and of late, pedophilia. Those have been driving factors of fear for those who may find militia groups appealing. What is the latest fear that they're being that they're promoting? I think there's not just one overarching one right now. I think that there are a variety of different concerns. Um, Probably the most common one has to do with the pandemic and the idea that it's, even if it wasn't intentionally created in China, that it's being actively used to desensitize us to to government control in various different forms um, and different spinoff versions of that. So did the racial justice movements and demonstrations of 2020, how much did that bring about militia unity, even with the most extreme groups? And does that unity still linger? It was really important in the early stages, I think, for giving not just militias, but people in the whole nostalgic group realm something to organize and rally around this Antifa threat, the the idea that some outside force was trying to take over America and its identity. Um, That's been fragmented quite a bit, especially after Kyle Rittenhouse and then the Facebook deplatforming and then January 6th. Um, Many of these groups are still struggling to sort of reshape their identity. They're still struggling to 
to re-attract a membership that was fractured across multiple new different social media platforms. And it's not entirely clear how all of that's going to shake out longer term. Militia leaders say they have the guns to win. That's a common phrase we keep hearing. In October of last year, a right-wing activist from Turning Point USA held a speaking event in Idaho. During the Q&A, a man in the audience asked the speaker, when do we get to use the guns? He clarified himself, no, and I'm not. That's not a joke. I'm not saying it like that. I mean, literally, where's the line? How many elections are they going to steal before we kill these people? So how likely, in your opinion, is it that this man's wishes will come true. I think, and this, I wish I had a crystal ball, um, but I think that for midterms, it's going to be fairly calm. I think that um, a lot of Trump supporters, regardless of militia affiliation or not, uh, justifiably believe that those midterms are going to largely work in their favor. And so they're not as concerned about those as they will be certain elements of the the presidential election, given its symbolic power, given that there's a Democrat already in office. And I I suspect personally that that is when we will see an amp up in possible violence. We have been speaking with sociologist and expert in contemporary U.S. militias, Amy Cooter, who wrote the Scientific American article, Citizen Militias in the U.S. are Moving Toward more violent extremism. You can follow Amy on Twitter at Amy Cooter, and you can find out more about Amy at our website, amycooter.com. One last question for you, Amy. And as we do with all of our guests, I promise our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask. You may hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. You write, although federal law enforcement attention has had a cooling effect on the militia movement, Other people inspired by events at the Capitol may now seek out the more violent, nostalgic groups for future action. You then quote historian Robert Churchill telling you that there is convergence of apocalypticism coming from the militia movement and from QAnon and from evangelical Christianity. What we really saw on January 6th was not just the militia movement, but a whole broader phenomenon. Apocalypticism is a belief that the end of the world is near, even within the believer's lifetime. So do those militias care if the end of the world is coming? Do they care that their actions could be contributing to that destruction? For many of them, if there's wrapped up with the, the religious element of this, then no. Some of them feel like they almost have a duty to bring about this end of times thing. For those who don't have the religious element, it's often about the end of the U.S. as opposed to the world as a whole. And some of them feel like if we reach that end point, then we have an opportunity to redo the Constitution, redo the country the way they think it should be. So the answer in that direction can be yes as well. You're right. I did hide it. (laughs) That was a question from Helen and answer from Helen. (laughs) Amy, thank you so much for being on the show. And the next time you have any writing out, please contact us because I've really enjoyed our conversation and I like your analysis of uh, militias and especially someone who isn't just doing it from afar and reading articles about it and then coming up with an opinion, but people, someone who's actually done field work. I really appreciate that. So thank you very much for being on our show. Great. Thank you. Take care. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove me wrong. Please prove me wrong. This is hell. And to prove me wrong, just email me at chuck at thisishell.com. If what you just heard from Amy Cooter on the increasing likelihood of U.S. militias becoming increasingly violent, if that in some way was enlightening or deprogrammed you from a previously held belief or understanding or made you feel like you actually learned something or to realize that, yes, 
This Really Is Hell show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which this week streams live on Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell. Next week, the Patreon podcast returns to its new regularly scheduled Thursday morning time slot. Or you can show your support of completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting This Is Hell and clicking on support on our Thursday, January 13th Patreon podcast. It was This Week in Hell, our semi-regular review of what I learned during that week's hell, which may not be what you learned during that week's episodes of This Is Hell. For instance, when we spoke with Henry Giroux on Apocalyptic Cynicism, the uh, belief that everyone's out for themselves and because of, uh, of and because of that humanity is doomed well that kind of belief is self-defeating according to henry and it was a, a kind of an uplifting conversation that you would not expect from someone who writes about as i said on patreon the disposability and destruction of youth the theft of innocence the crisis of public education after neoliberalism the violence of organized forgetting the rise of authoritarianism the normalization of fascism the nightmarish american addiction to terrorism and the simultaneous crises of racism, climate change, as well as the pandemic. Who knew I would actually feel better after speaking with Henry Giroux? Meanwhile, from our talk with John R. Brooks, who wrote the American Prospect article, The Big Student, Line, uh, Big Student Loan Lie, I learned that Obamacare is funded on the backs of students who are getting in more and more debt every day. And when it came to speaking with Jeff Nesbitt, co-author of the Gizmodo article, How Big Oil Rigs the System to Keep Winning, I was reminded of what corporate mainstream establishment media considers political advertising and what it does not view as political advertising, and that is paid propaganda campaigns by the fossil fuel industry. There were also big reveals, like the real story behind those national beer ads we used to play on the show and our connection to the state of Maine. Also on Patreon, we were inspired by our talk with Henry Giroux, so we shared our 2010 talk with Henry about his then-just-published book, Youth in a Suspect Society, Democracy or Disposability, an interview that is not currently available anywhere else online but at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash thisishell. You can only hear This Week in Hell and some behind-the-seals scenes never revealed uh, stuff about the show and our second-ever interview with Henry Giroux by subscribing to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. By subscribing, you get a secret code word that gives all Patreon patrons $5 off each piece of This Is Hell merchandise, which you can find at thisishell.com when you click on support. Richard, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are answering so far. This week's question from hell is, what have you been putting off? Benjamin is putting off organizing a carpenter's reunion. Oh, jeez. Good right. luck with that, Ben. Exactly. Because <laughs> one of them is not around. Braden S. is putting off the inevitable. Well, that's good. That's always good to put off. Because that inevitable thing is going to happen anyway. You might as well put it off. Our Jeffrey is putting off testing myself for COVID. No. Well, yeah. Those tests don't work anyway. Becca M. is putting off studying for my private plane, for, for my private pilot written exam. Oh, sweet. And she uh, uh, supplied a little uh, animated thing of Bugs Bunny flying a plane while reading a book about how to fly. <laughs> nice. What have you been putting off? Warren L. answers, I find this question rather off-putting. <laughs> Warren, I find this question rather putting off. <laughs> Rob H. answers, everyone around me. 
See, that's a good answer. What have you been putting off? Dan, K, other people, mostly. <laughs> See, people are figuring that out. Oh, yes. uh, the pun works. The innuendo works both ways. What have you been putting off? Greg um, answers, kicking off the global insurrection. <laughs> Gotta build up my Netflix watch list first. <laughs> Michael D answers, more beer. <laughs> that's your putting of that off? All right. You'd want to be putting that on. <laughs> exactly. What have you been putting off? David R. answers, submitting an answer to the question from hell. Uh, <gasps> but that is your answer to the question from hell. It's so meta. Fabio answers, creating NFTs for questions from hell <laughs> and demanding royalties from every answer. <laughs> I like that. Wojciak answers, what have you been putting off? He answers, death. <laughs> That's inevitable, too. Again, another inevitability you might as well put off. What have you been putting off? Pete, our Pete answers, assembling this robot lizard. Ah, uh, now that I agree with, and I'm so glad he didn't say, your mom. <laughs> that was the inevitable answer. <laughs> it was the answer he's been putting off. Kim G answers, what have you been putting off? Pun groans about golf balls. Okay. I kind of misread that almost as gun groans about goofballs. <laughs> Alex G answers, finishing my Rembrandt forgery. Oh, I see. And that is uh, all we have for today. So, again, the question from hell is, what have you been putting off? What have you been putting off? The person with their favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want that is currently available at thisishell.com. And you can see it right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's shows. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory. This week in Rotten History. And Richard has this week's first entry in Rotten History. Yes, I do. Dateline, <laughs> January 18th. 1930, <laughs> 92 years ago today, in Watsonville, California, about 10 miles southeast of Santa Cruz, a mob of some 500 angry white men showed up outside a dance hall owned by Filipino immigrants, which catered mainly to immigrant farm laborers also from the Philippines. This is not going to end well. Most of the immigrants were young men who, due to extreme gender bias in, in immigration and hiring, found themselves deprived of female companionship in the new country, and who came to the club regularly to dance with white women. When the mob of white men, angered by the interracial fraternizing, threatened to set fire to the club, the club owners grabbed their guns and began shooting back in self-defense. The riot continued until police arrived with, with tear, tear gas. But tensions remained, and over the next several days, a wave of anti-immigrant violence spread from Wat Watsonville to other towns in the area, as far away as Stockton and San Francisco. For five days, Filipinos were dragged out of their homes, beaten, shot at, and even thrown off bridges. Businesses that employed Filipino immigrants were attacked and damaged. One young man named Furman Tobera was shot to death. His body was sent back to the Philippines where he was viewed as a martyr. 
The Watsonville riots caused many Filipino immigrants living in the Bay Area to simply pack up and leave the country. Within the next four years, the California state legislator legislature would outlaw intermarriage between whites and Filipinos and the U.S. Congress would restrict Filipino immigrants to just 50 people per year. So white people threatened to burn down a Filipino-owned dance hall because Filipino men were dancing with white women, leading to violence that spread quickly throughout the area, leading to more violence, violence that turned deadly. And the state government responded by... Making intermarriage between whites and Filipinos illegal and the federal government responded by restricting Filipino immigration. In other words, both governments did exactly what the deadly racist mob wanted the state and federal government to do. And my guess is this is not a lesson being taught in California public compulsory education history classes. Also in Rotten History on January 21st, 1960, 61 years ago Friday at their 62 years ago Friday. Mm-hmm. At the Coalbrook North Coal Mine near Sasselberg, South Africa, some 1,000 miners at work underground suddenly heard loud noises that sounded like gunfire. And as this is rotten history, it's likely that the sound was actually something far more rotten than gunfire that was echoing in the coal mine. Work continued in most of the mine as managers looked for damage, but a few hours later came a so-called cascading collapse of more than 900 pillars that supported the roof of the mine tunnels. So the gunfire, apparently, was the sound of coal mine supports snapping. In such a collapse, the failure of one pillar shifts an increasing weight load onto the adjacent pillars, triggering an effect like that of falling dominoes, which really ruins the game of dominoes. At Colebrook, some miners died immediately while others were trapped underground to die slowly from inhaling poisonous gases. A total of 435 workers were killed in what remains the worst mining disaster in the history of South Africa. And this week's Rotten History reminds us yet again that violent white racists got whatever they want from the United States government back in 1930. And coal mines not only contribute to climate change a lot, but were deadly dangerous places to work, which is not the kind of history being taught in K-12 through history classes because... That's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Richard, uh, who's our next guest on this week's This Is Hell? Yes. Wednesday, we have Roberto Lovato on his article, The Gentrification of Consciousness for Alta Online. Yeah, that's great. The gentrification of psilocybin. I'm really looking forward to that (laughs) conversation on tomorrow's show. And do we know who will be our final guest on this week's show? Yes, we do. On Thursday, Paulo... Sorbelo on his article reporting on Kazakhstan's chaos amid internet shutdowns and violence. And of course, oh, that was for Open open Democracy and of course, A Moment of Truth. From Jeffrey Dorchin. Thanks to our guest today, sociologist and expert in contemporary U.S. militias, Amy Cooter, who wrote the Scientific American article, Citizen Militias in the United States are moving toward more violent extremism. You can follow Amy on Twitter, at Amy Cooter, and you can find out more about Amy at her website, amycooter.com. Finally, it's time for you to decide exactly why we did not do a live streaming show on Wednesday this week. I already mentioned that immediately following our January 13th uh, Patreon podcast, I was diagnosed with gastroesophageal reflux disease with esophagitis without hemorrhage. Thank God. 
which is a fancy way to say I have really bad acid reflux, which is a not-so-fancy way to describe stomach acid causing irritation by getting into my food pipe. Yeah, there's something called the food pipe, not to be confused with the 1990s band The Verve Pipe, a band that seemingly plays every street fair in the Midwest. By the way, have you ever heard the lyrics or read them to their only hit single, The Freshman? Don't, because it is a really grim story about two dudes who treat a woman horribly and then blame it all on her. If you have ever heard the song before, don't worry. You'll get a chance to hear the song about misogynistic teenagers, especially if you go to an outdoor street festival or a county or state fair anywhere in the Midwest this summer. So did we not do a show on Monday because I have a really horrible cause of, or a case of acid reflux that is likely the cause of serious pain in my throat? Unless it's something worse that has yet to be determined? Or did we not do a show on Monday because, as we have done the last few years, we took the day off to celebrate the birthday of Martin Luther King Jr. and the federal holiday that is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, a day that probably irritates militia members across the United States, although they would never admit it in mixed company. Then there's the third possibility of why we did not do a show on Monday, and that is we could not find a guest willing to appear on the show. We usually do not have any problem booking guests. In fact, we usually have multiple guests who either have requested to be on or who have replied to our interview request saying they are interested in being interviewed. So maybe it's because we didn't get a lot of guest suggestions for our listeners this week. And if you have a guest suggestion or a topic suggestion, all you have to do is send it to chuck at thisishell.com. So it's time to make your choice. Was the reason we did not do a show on Monday, was it A, I was still recuperating from the worst of my throat pain, B, we were recognizing Martin Luther King Jr.'s contributions to civil rights, including the rights of people of color as well as the poor and the anti-war movement in the United States, or C, we simply could not find anyone who was interested in being a guest on Monday's show? All of the above. And the answer is a trick question because... (laughs) Yeah, it's a, it's a trick answer because it's a trick question, as Richard was saying. It's true that I was still experiencing throat pain, and it's also true that we could not find anyone to do the show. But the reason we could not find anyone available was probably because Monday was a federal holiday, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. But personally, I did not know Monday was Martin Luther King Jr. Day until after checking to see if the mail arrived for the second time. I wondered why we were not getting any mail. That's when I went online and saw social media posts where Martin Luther King Jr. quotes were being shared. Liberals were posting inspirational quotes sometimes of a religious nature, while those on the left were differentiating themselves by posting the more revolutionary statements made by Dr. King that are always ignored by the establishment mainstream corporate media and knee-jerk partisans who are not into reminding everyone that King was, in fact, not only anti-war, but anti-capitalist. So the answer is, as Richard was saying, all of the above, my throat still hurt, and unbeknownst to us, Monday was Martin Luther King Jr. Day, which explains why potential guests did not want to do the show. In other words, I've been in too much pain to even notice that we could have taken the day off, which means for me, this is hell. Thanks to Richard Norwood for running the board today. Thanks to Alexander Jerry for producing. And thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for Rotten History. And this week's Hangover Cure is Kimchi and Eggs. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. 
Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more Interview Hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.